Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast exploring the subtleties of living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, and here with me and my weekly guests, you can expect curious and brave conversations all centering around what it means to live into the process of awakening to our worth, wholeness, and power. We will talk about personal, collective, and spiritual freedom, riff on sovereign leadership, living in levity, and bridge the mystical with the down-to-earth and practical. There is not much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. In this episode, Jamila, Reddy, and I just got to go so deep. I was I was so tickled. Jamila Reddy is a writer, self-empowerment coach, and life enthusiast I connected with via Instagram and just fell in love with their mission to help people manifest their dreams. Jamila is the creator of Make It Happen, an online course for creative, compassionate people who want to be more powerful, purposeful, and spend more time doing what they love. Jamila's podcast, Deliberate and Doing It Afraid, features personal stories from their journey to their best life and the lessons that come from it. And my conversation with Jamila today really centers in on both and. We talk about living as a queer person, their experience with polyamorous relationships and being gender non-conforming. And we talk mostly about holding room for our joy and seasons of grief and creating a container within ourselves of being powerful when life doesn't feel so good. This episode and connecting with Jamila brought me so much joy. I cannot wait for you to dive into and just savor in the energy of this conversation. I would grab a pen and paper and just expect that you're going to want to write down a couple quotes from the episode. Let's dive in. Jamila, thanks so much for being here with me on the Everything Belongs podcast. I have admired you from afar and getting to meet you just in the last like little 10 minutes has been a freaking joy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this chat. I've been looking forward to it all week. Uh, Me too. So I would love if you gave some context to the work that you do in the world and maybe just walked us through the last one, however long, however many years, however many lifetimes it's been of you getting to this place in your life where you are serving and sharing the work that you do in the world. Yeah. Could you just give us some context? Yes. So I, I feel like I've always been a person that um, folks, maybe not always, but um, <laughs> what feels like for a great, a large portion of my life, I've been a person that people come to for insight or advice. Um, and I really love to think. I feel like I've always been a critical thinker. Like my brain is constantly just like drawing connections. Um, and I was heavily engaged with theater Um, which feels really relevant. I was doing directing before I moved into coaching. Um, That was kind of my career trajectory was that I wanted to be working in the American theater um, and doing, you know, creating these performance pieces. And at some point I was able to recognize that the thing that I loved most about directing was taking a vision and making it real was like taking a script or something that was kind of like an idea on paper and externalizing it and making it come alive. And I realized like, oh, that's a transferable skill. Like I can definitely do this in my life. Like I have cultivated the skill now of taking someone's outline, someone's vision 
and then making it into something that we can live into and experience. And so I moved into coaching after a friend of mine said, you know, you, you kind of always, you have the skill, um, you know, you have this magic about you and you should monetize it. You should be able to, you know, to, to sustain yourself from this. Um, and so I started, I just like created a little Instagram post and I was like, I'm a coach, uh, (laughs) you know, started, started on the path. Um, and really in doing, I was really able to solidify like, oh, this is so, this is so me. And this is so, this feels so good to do. Um, and then the coaching evolved into teaching and speaking and podcasting, um, and, and it's continuing to evolve. Um, and a significant, a really a significant turning point was in 2018, my sister died of an overdose. And in 2019, six months later, my father died from cancer. And so I was confronted with existential questions about what, what is my path? And also grieving the loss of life helped me understand how valuable life is. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was the, it kind of just like all of these lessons like locked into my body of like, wow, life is so sacred and precious. And I don't want to take it for granted because it is really not guaranteed. Um, mm-hmm. And, and in grieving the loss of, of my, my sister and my dad, I was able to also recognize that part of my grief was coming from this sense of their potential having been cut short or like I could imagine these magnificent lives that they could have lived. Um, and I thought, you know, how do I, how do I reconcile this grief around their loss of potential? And the only way that I could figure out how to do that was to make a commitment to my own and to make a commitment to help as many people as possible experience their fullest potential. Um, and to not wait also, because I had, I feel like I had so many, you know, all of a sudden I was like, oh, all these visions that I had about the future, you know, like when we grow up, we'll have, we'll buy houses together and we'll be side by side on the beach. And then, you know, it was like, oh yeah, I don't know why I, I don't know why I thought I, I don't know why I waited. Um, so, so that those grief and death experiences really propelled me on this path towards um, living intentionally and moving with a graceful urgency towards a life of alignment and joy. Um, and that's where I'm at today. It's kind of mm-hmm. figuring out what that looks like and how that shows up. Wow. So some, something that really attracted me to you and to the, the work that you're doing is the way that your spirituality, your relationship with earth, your relationship with spirit feels so effervescent and um, has a lightness to it, like a a floatiness, but deeply rooted, Mm. not devoid of feeling, not devoid of grief. You speak openly to the difficult things in life, but bring such a maybe visionary perspective without making them non-human. And I'm, I'm curious if that grief I'm going to call it like a grief portal, experiencing death. Is that something that opened you up to that? Or had you lived in that way previous to experiencing death? I think grief definitely was truly a portal is such an accurate description. Um, But I think the thing that it led me to 
was that joy and feeling good was a non-negotiable, that it became the medicine. It became preventative medicine. It became healing medicine. Whereas before, I think I, you know, I, you know, I thought it was important, um, but I realized that it was, it was because I could not, because I could not say no to grief. Like I, it just comes and you have to let it in. Um, I felt like knowing that grief was coming, how can I also cultivate joy so that there's the buffer, like the spiritual buffer um, so that when I'm grieving, I have the memory of joy is really close. It's not like a foreign concept. It's not like it was, you know, many moons ago that I was joyful. I'm like, nope, I know that it was just here and I know that it is coming again. So I can give myself permission to fully sink into this feeling because, because I experience them all as temporary. Um, and so, so yeah, grieving, I think really, it, it made me, it made me prioritize joy in a way that I hadn't before. Um, Mm -hmm. as that preventative medicine, as that thing that was going to help me knowing that those waves of grief are going to come again. I feel like I use joy now and the lightness, you know, the levity. I I feel like I'm so intentional about that so that I can fill myself with it so that when it's harder for me to reach, I kind of have a, have a reserve. I got some backup, you know? Yeah. Reserve is such a good word. Like I actually almost named this podcast levity because that, that feeling is, it is medicine and having a reserve of knowing where to go. I saw Elizabeth D'Alto. Are you familiar with Elizabeth's work or the name? With who? Elizabeth D'Alto. No. She's a podcaster, but she posted something yesterday that I loved and then was like, Ooh, this may be controversial. And it was a quote that said that she said that was joy does not disrespect grief. And it felt true in my experience. And I noticed myself resist sharing it or resist bringing it forward in conversations because I'm like, I agree, but what if someone feels disrespected by the joy or that I'm, you know, erasing the grief that is needed and real by joy. And so I'm curious in your experience of embodying and cultivating joy in seasons of grief, um, what did it, have you felt any internal resistance to that? Mm. To joy. To joy, cultivating joy, the right to joy. I certainly have. Um, but I, I, I have, and um, I've been practicing Buddhism. I'm, I'm out of practice right now, to be honest. Um, but one of the Buddhist philosophies that really resonates with me is that um, those who have suffered the most deserve to become the happiest. <laughs> and so I, I guess I'm really good at giving myself permission um, to be happy because I feel like I have paid my dues. Okay. I have definitely put in the work work um, to be able to feel, to be able to feel this. And also I feel like um, the depth of my grief informs the depth of my joy. So, so I think, I, I think sometimes it confuses me. Like there was, I remember right after my sister died, someone brought over like some straight up craft Mac and cheese, like box. <laughs> Like yes. that, they're on a PK with like the powdered, okay. But you like, add milk to it. 
you add milk to it, but like in a, in an eclair box and it was frozen. So I was like, Ooh, these like chocolate eclairs. I like took them, even though no, I should have food nor dairy, like brought these chocolate eclairs out. I was so excited to just like have me a little nibble and I opened it and it was like this frost bitten block of Kraft macaroni and cheese. And when I tell you, I like cried laughing. <laughs> I could not. I could not. And I was just, everyone was like, what are you laughing at? And I was just like holding, holding the box of this like frozen chunk of crab mac and cheese and just <laughs> crying, laughing. And I remember being like, this is so weird. Like as I was doing it, like there was my like, consciousness, you know, my ego was like, this is so bizarre. Like <laughs> days later, you know, so, like in the thick of it. And I was just like beside myself with laughter. <laughs> And, and it was a moment that I was like, oh, like, it definitely felt a little strange. Like, is something wrong with me such that I'm able, like, oh, does this mean that I'm not processing my grief? Or does this mean, like, that I'm not doing it right? Or, um, you know, like, I kind of felt like, and, and I, I noticed in my experience that a lot of people have this expectation. I felt like there was a lot of projections of people's expectation of what my grief should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people would say like, I know you're not okay, but you know, how can I, how can I help? And I'd be like, actually, I'm actually, I'm okay today. Uh, you know, like, uh, uh, so, so yeah, I definitely felt that kind of like uh, the, what's the dissonance sometimes between feeling that joy um, in the midst of grief. But I feel like that philosophy that I deserve to experience that joy and happiness helped me kind of move through that resistance pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and bizarre things happening are like a gift. Yes, absolutely. It's so true. <laughs> like, like, what the fuck is this? Yes. I thought there were some chocolate eclairs in here. Damn it. So uh, I mentioned this to you before we started recording um, because it's been a big, it's been a big year of grief for me in, in different ways. But um, what I, what I felt like is just this spring, this coming back up and just almost like taking a breath of seeing in, in a clearer consciousness, whereas I, I went into a season of grief and it was like everything I knew was about reality was being deconstructed on my behalf. Like it was just like I didn't have to even work for it. It just was, I don't know who I am, how I identify, what, you know, all of the, the qualities about myself. And I think se- seasons of grief, portals of grief initiation can do that, can just discombobulate everything we thought we knew about life, the world, God, ourselves. And then I feel like I've just been like bubbling up of like, oh, like something new has been happening underground. And I don't, I don't actually have words for it yet. I don't know what it is, but I, it's like, I'm starting to feel more like myself and like a completely different person than I was before. Yes, absolutely. Do you relate to that? Percent. <laughs> I, I often will say that, like, it kind of feels like being reborn because yeah. it's like when something happens, um, when any kind of significant loss happens, you are truly changed. I mean, we're changing every single second, but it just changes you. And I and I felt so changed. Like, I thought I I thought I kind of knew what life was and who I was, but but it feels like I'm having to like learn how to 
learn how to live in this new reality. Like I know how to live in that old reality that is gone. <laughs> and so I feel like a grown baby having learning how to like walk and talk and like eat and take care of myself and do all of the things um, because because this is a new world. Um, it's a new reality and I am a new person in it. And so, yeah, just like being like, who am I? <laughs> Uh, but I love that. I love that newness. I love that. I think that's why I move so much because I love the idea that you can reinvent um, or that you can start over or mm-hmm. just like, you know, with new people or new places, you can just say like, this is who I am and this is what I'm about. And nobody has any concept of who you were before. And you get to say, you get to say who you are. Um, so I feel like it's kind of that. It feels like moving to a new place a little bit spiritually where you're like, okay, I'm in this new place. And I get to, you know, be someone new if I want to be. Mm. How many times have you moved? I'm curious. Oh, my goodness. So let's see. I moved from after I left college, which was in my home state, North Carolina. I moved to D.C. Then I moved to Brooklyn. Um, and then I moved to L.A. And then I moved to New- back to Brooklyn. And then I moved here, back to North Carolina. So it was a five, six. Yeah. Um, lots of motion. Have you had seasons of grieving? Has it always felt new and exciting or were there seasons of grief in each move? Hmm. I think I, that's a great question. I feel like the, the, I think more, I mean, yes, and all of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Seasons of grief. And I, it also has felt new and exciting, but I think a lot of those moves were informed by the experience of knowing that I got some, I got some foster dogs. Don't mind us. They, they really don't. Can you hear the sirens? Yes. They are very shaken by the sirens. So poor babies. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're monsters. <laughs> yeah, they're monsters. <laughs> but keep going. I, I know that I'm actually gonna mute myself so you can keep going without hearing these babies. Um so I feel like a lot of those moves were informed by this kind of sudden awakening or understanding that the life that I was living in no longer fit the person that I was. And so I kind of felt like it was kind of like stepping out of a shirt that had gotten too small. You know, it's kind of like, oh, this is my favorite shirt and I love it and it looks so good on me. But also like, I can't be like, it's, it's too tight, you know, like I'm, I'm being squeezed up in here. So I feel like the moves were kind of that feeling of like, oh, this, this fits better. Um, this actually feels a lot more aligned. Like my, the moves were informed by a desire for my external experience to feel aligned with my internal experience. And so there was a lot of joy that felt like, yes, like this is it. And then of course, you know, after a year, I'm like, this is not quite it anymore, but you know, now the next thing and the next thing, um, just sort of that continual, continuous leveling up. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think, there's always some, I think moving is inherently because of transition, you know, there's always some grief of having to, my experience was having to grieve the old me, you know, I was like glad to leave the old me behind, but there was like a part of me that was still like, oh, you know, can't, you can't just like, you can't do all the things you used to do anymore. Like that life is over. Um, and it feels like laying to rest, like laying myself to rest over and over and over again. Um, 
and that being kind of challenging of like that part of you is, is no longer, mm-hmm. um, but they're mostly joyful. Cause I was like, yes, this is it. This is better. Yeah. There's such a familiarity. I I've lived in the city I live in now for 10 years. I grew up in St. Louis and moved to where I live now and for college, got married and then have just built a life here and have thought about moving many times. And think about the familiarity of the people of the coffee shop that I know mm. and the people who deliver my groceries to my house that are like local farmers. And there's, there are these pieces that, um, during any change, even just my divorce, moving neighborhoods, like all of those things brought up, they were so scrambly. And the new thing was like establishing a familiarity with the new thing, the new pace, the new rhythm. Um, and then remembering that there's like these anchor points and you talked about the reserve and I actually want to get back to that because what I'm thinking about is these anchor points in my life of the coffee shop, the spiced oddity coffee that I get that has oat milk and they put a lime on it with a mango slice, mm-hmm. you know, and it has cardamom in it. And I'm like, Oh, that feels like the joy I remember. And these like, when everything is different, these like small pieces that anchor me into the things that I love, even though my identity is unfolding and changing and who, who I think of myself and God and all of that as is, is so different. Um, there have been these constants mm. that have anchored me. Um, music is one of them for me. Yes. I was just thinking music. For yeah. Sure. Yes. Can you, I'm going to ask a precursor question because I popped into my mind. What surprised you most about yourself as you moved through these portals of grief? Mm. What surprised me most as I moved through portals of grief was my ability to endure discomfort that was beyond a discomfort that I could have ever imagined. And I am a, I I love comfort. I am like, historically a people pleaser. I like for things to feel good, you know, (laughs) cozy. Like I like my soft, fuzzy things. Like I like for, you know, there to be harmony. Um, and so much of my life was informed by me kind of avoiding discomfort and avoiding pain because I had this idea or this narrative, the story about myself that I wouldn't be able to handle it. I'm so sensitive. Like commercials make me cry. So I'd always be like, Oh my God, if something terrible happened to me, it would destroy me and I wouldn't be able to get through it. And so when I was like in the throes and I would just like truly surrender. I mean, I feel like that is when I understood the word surrender. I would just be like, I, I am, I have nothing. I can't even, I don't even have the energy to resist right now. So I'm just going to like, let it come through me. And then after the kind of, you know, I like, I like, think of it like storms or like waves, you know, after the big wave passes to be like, wow, that definitely kicked my ass. And I'm still here. Yeah. Wow. I really, I really did it. Like I just, it didn't destroy me. I think that's what surprised me is that it didn't destroy me and that I was still hopeful and still connected to my potential to have a beautiful life despite this, you know, difficult circumstance. I was Mm. surprised by that. I was like, oh wow. Like I really, for so long, I thought that, you know, pain and suffering would knock me down. And it did. And I thought I wouldn't get back up, but I did. That surprised me. Mm. Really All did. of that you're able to hold. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
feel like we need more narratives at, around what we're able to hold. And all and because I know something that you and I share just from reading your work is that self-responsibility is a virtue, but this is a really beautiful thing. And I met with a lot of resistance. And especially for people in my actual local community, which is really fascinating, that like my work is mean or harsh, which is like so not how I intend it to be. <laughs> because self-responsibility has been like a liberatory factor in my life that like actually I I am resilient and I can hold this and I'm able to do it, mm-hmm. which I've had to learn through holding really hard things <laughs> and processing it with tenderness and with grace. And so I want to talk about the reserves because I think the reserves is how we, we use self-responsibility and know that like, Oh, I, I have to just do this. Like I have, I don't have a choice. I'm feeling this. I have to feel it. Um, and I can choose how I, do that. So can you tell me about your concept of reserves Mm. and how you use that? Yes. So one of the things that I, that I think about is like this idea of a toolkit, which I'm sure you're familiar with and, you know, you coach people. Um, But basically like the metaphor that I, that I like to share is, is, you know, if you, if you move into a new house, you want to have all your tools in one place. So that if you want to hang up a painting to make your room more beautiful, that you're not searching all over the house, you're not having to look in every single room, every single drawer for a nail and a hammer. That similarly, having self-care practices that I know I kind of can locate them easily because I'm in practice with them every day um, or every other day, you know, as often and, and intentionally, um, you know, consistently engaging with these practices so that when I need them, I'm not having to look all over or reach really far or just let the thing, you know, if like if a chair breaks, you want to be able to like drill it back together. You know, you don't want to have to be like getting a new chair or like sitting on the wobbly chair. And I kind of feel that way. Like my reserves are these practices that I, that I do no matter what my state is. Um, so that when I'm in a place of just not really having the energy that I can kind of, they're, they're familiar, you know, just like you said, these kind of familiar anchor points. Um, and so I think having the established practice becomes a reserve in and of itself, the established practice. It's not something like, oh, you should, oh, oh, you're in the middle of a grief experience. Like you should try journaling. It's like, nobody, ha- I, I don't have, you know, I can't pull from, it's not the time to be starting something new. You know, in the middle of when you're a new person (laughs) living in a new reality, it's like, just be easy on yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I talk about, you know, training or preparing um, for these inevitable seasons of grief by having the practices that um, that are already solidified. Um, That feels really important. Also, like you said, community feels like another reserve. And knowing that being in practice with friends around being vulnerable and naming our feelings and just holding space for each other and reaching out and telling the truth, like that becomes, I feel like I'm feeding my own resource. Like I'm kind of putting in, um, putting into the bank, so to speak, um, so that I can take out, you know, my savings grow and grow and grow when I feed my relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and that became something, you know, especially in grief that I, I mean, I, I, it was so important. I could not have done it alone. I really, 
And there were certainly times that I felt alone, but like I couldn't have done it alone. Um, So recognizing that my community and my chosen family, they need, those relationships need to be fed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that I don't ever want them to be one-sided, you know? Um, So that pouring into them gives me permission to take out when I feel like I need it, because that is the culture we've established together. Um, so I, so actually having those two death experiences got me really in, more intentional about nurturing my relationships with people um, and wanting to show up um, so that it felt balanced for us whenever, whenever any of us were going through something. Um, yeah. Which will happen because life. Because life, because the human experience. Yeah. Like we spend so much time avoiding death when like birth, like birth and death exist all the time all the time that is that is how it goes <laughs> for all of us that is how it goes <laughs> yeah i i love what you said about community and just the emphasis on establishing a culture of regenerative community mm-hmm. um you didn't use that word you use maybe reciprocal but like this it has reserve to be taken from and I actually think this is a huge misunderstanding i had about community for a long time that I felt so alone and no one got me and no one was getting me and no one supported my work and whatever the story it was, you know, that I was telling. And a lot of it was that I didn't know how to be in relationship. And I was so lonely, especially in hard times because I hadn't established, like you said, a culture of vulnerability, a culture of asking for my needs to be met. And part of it was, I wasn't, you know, no fault. Like I wasn't raised to, to do that. And so much of the grief that I experienced was, compounded because of not knowing how to identify needs, ask for needs, receive the care. Mm. And also knowing I had to put in that time and putting put in that energy to where it might feel good for someone yes. to give. Yes. So what have your relationships since this experience, what has your relationship with your community and your family, how has that shifted? since deepening this awareness? I think, um, that's a good question. How has it shifted? Hmm. I'm like really reflecting on each, I'm like, okay, I go through each person, you know, like how has my relationship with this person shifted and with this person? Um, well, I, I feel like, I feel like these people know me in and out now Mm -hmm. Um, different way because they've seen me in so many versions of myself and they've seen me kind of go through the metamorphosis and so just like trusting that I am allowed to change and that I still am loved um, despite the you know me evolving through the many versions of myself and I feel like that has allowed me to show up just a little bit more authentically um, with these people Um, And to get really, really real Um, and kind of, yeah, I mean, even with my friends, I think there, there was some like, you know, these little shames, just little, you know, like I kind of embarrassed about that. And like, we don't need need to talk about that, you know, like (laughs) out of the time and, you know, but I feel like kind of just like releasing any shame or releasing shame about not being any kind of way um, and allowing that shamelessness to to infuse 
to be infused into my relationships. Um, and I think that has just allowed, created space for more closeness and more like realness. Like, I feel like now we are at a point where we're like, okay, there's no, with my closest, closest, you know, chosen family members. Um, I, I feel like we're kind of moving away from this training of, of hiding, hiding things that are kind of embarrassing or shameful um, and just getting like really real with each other. Um, and I, I've noticed, you know, it's a beautiful question. I'm grateful to, to reflect on it. I feel like I've noticed a more, a, a, a deeper willingness to just name a feeling that is challenging. Like that has become a part of the, that has become a cultural norm. It's like really struggling today, really feeling the grief today. Um, and just like naming that in the moment such that it's like, yep, you know, I get that. That's valid. And that it doesn't have to always be this big thing where you have to like process with someone, you can just like name it. Um, and that has felt significant. Like, I feel like we've all kind of recognized that grief is an ever present experience. Um, and so being able to kind of show up for the vulnerability with each other feels really good. I feel like we're peeling away the layers, you know, the mask, the Mm -hmm. performance with each other. Um, and like, there have been times where like, yeah, my friendships, I feel like a lot, you know, they've evolved to like just kind of sitting in funks with each other sometimes. It's like, I feel like my 20s were like playing and partying and adventuring and traveling. And now it's a lot more stillness. There's a lot of just like, you're sad. I'll be sad with you or I'll be with you when you're sad rather. Um, or we can, or we're both sad and we can just be together, you know, like not having, releasing this idea that we have to be any sort of way to deserve togetherness. Mm. Um, but that we can just be together no matter how we are. What you just said, that we have to be any certain way to deserve togetherness, this conditional sense of belonging. Right. It, whenever it's like, it's just innate, it's, it's innate belonging, and then we set up the conditions for ourselves of how we think that we must present ourselves to be acceptable in order to belong and to be safe, and, oh, man, that's a, that's a, a pattern that I'm exhausted of. Same. <laughs> I'm tired of I'm living in relationship in that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. I I want to shift the conversation to talk a little bit, um, and you can definitely tell me if like this is a no, but I'm curious about how being a queer gender nonconforming person contributes to the capacity and the ability to say, this is my authentic self, this is who I am. And how that in and of itself like, is a way to form a community of people that accept you. Mm. And that's not even a question. But would you be willing to go there? Yes, absolutely. So something that comes to mind almost immediately is that the thing that I love the most about queerness and about like being gender nonconforming is that there's the fluidity. That I feel like there's an acknowledgement that like moment to moment, it's going to change. Like I love <laughs> asking people, like, how are you in this moment? Um, and how are you today? Right? What are you feeling right now? And I feel like that to me is kind of the spirit of queerness that, that it, it just evolves and it's fluid. And that, you know, there are some days where I feel like super femme and like, you know, I want to like have the hoop earrings and the dress. Um, and not that like gender has anything to do with like what you are wearing, but the point is like the ways that I express what I feel internally, um, the ways that I externalize, you know, my, my, my spirit and make it evident for other people feels like just way more fluid. 
um, and that it's never static. And I feel like that, that has been, you know, such a liberating discovery that it can change. You know, I feel like when I, when I, you know, I remember being like 15 and my mom was like, are you a lesbian? And I was like, no, mom, do not ask me such questions. (laughs) And I kind of recognized, like, she just went there. She really did. Are you a lesbian? Straight up. Like, (laughs) someone, if they're a lesbian, mom. Uh, But I, but I never, (laughs) I always kind of felt like, well, if I say I'm a lesbian, that means that I am, am, I'm not creating space to love a man, which doesn't feel truthful, or that I, I can't be attracted to, you know, anyone, but like, I have to be a woman attracted to women. And, and as I'm like coming into queerness, and that is why queer, I think I resisted queerness because I didn't have the language for queerness for so long. I was like, you're either gay or you're not. Um, Mm -hmm. And and it felt still like I, I, the mainstream, you know, um, depiction of queerness is, is usually still pretty binaried. And so I felt a little bit like that it didn't resonate for me. I was like, I just feel like there, there's this expansiveness that, that queerness really offers, um, that day to day, I feel like I can move through many versions of myself. Um, and I have, it feels like I give myself permission to have this infinite capacity to love and to, and to desire, um, and to connect with as many people as possible. Um, which is also another, I mean, and, and I also identify as polyamorous, which is like a whole, we could do a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> on that. Um, but similarly, I feel like my experience and my journey kind of claiming my polyamory has been the same about claiming my queerness, which is just about kind of giving myself more wiggle room and, and acknowledging this infinite capacity that like love is an, is an unlimited resource. Um, and that my ability to, to love and be loved is kind of, is just not confined or defined by gender roles or gender period. Um, so yeah, that was a lot. Did I answer? I don't even, you didn't ask oh my me. <laughs> I'm like, did I answer your question that you didn't? Oh, it's so good. You know, the thing you said about your mom, I just, I'm, I'm thinking back to my teen years and how I was like full on purity culture of like, I'm never having sex before I'm married. And I was very rigid about it. And um, I remember my, my parents being like, very much like proud of me until they were like you should start dating though <laughs> being like worried about me and my mom actually told me that I needed to lower my standards for men or I was never going to find someone and that like the this biblical man that I was like wanting them to be like Christ Jesus himself um they didn't exist I know getting married really young and then coming out later it's it's Really, it just cracks me up that no one even assumed that I was queer because I present so femme. Mm. And how the responses I've gotten since coming out, like a family member was like, well, you're not gay. I've seen gay. And I had another person literally call me a lesbo, which I didn't even know was a term that was still used. (laughs) I really, it's been such a journey to be like, oh my gosh, this is, uh, I've had a friend ask, like, how do you, what is, what does sex mean? You know, like, and I'm just like, whoa. I mean, I live in the Bible Belt. But the, um, 
it's been really interesting experiencing the freedom of getting to define what relationship looks like through queerness, that there actually aren't roles that anyone's told me in this relationship that I have to exist within. And when you said freedom, like, it's been, it just has all felt like the most obvious thing. <laughs> so I'm, just, I'm tickled by some of the questions because I'm like, I don't know how to explain to you that I don't have to explain to you what freedom feels like. Right. Right. And his, and yet I'm still asking questions and yet I'm still learning. And so what questions do I have? I mean, really (laughs) in particular about the relationship and being in relationship in this way, it seems like inherently brings about more vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious about then your experience and what uh, the continual process of coming out, if you even feel like you owe anyone your coming out, has looked like. Um, because I've I never felt like I owed anyone the answer for what I am, which how I identify. It's, I just I don't even know the words for that. It's bleh, like <laughs> what, and yet. Um, it, it does feel like a consistent informing through whether you're informing or not informing and navigating right relationship and navigating who to be in relationship with that can hold the fluidity. Right. And so to circle it back to the conversation about belonging and relationship, how have you navigated spaces where you can both be defined and undefined at the same time? I think um, I'm a big proponent of the check-in, okay? I love a good (laughs) check-in. Tell us more. I love a good check-in. So um, my my, former partner and I um, started this practice of doing a weekly check-in where every week for uh, about, was it 45 minutes to an hour, we would do a check-in. And the first part of the check-in was, um, it was like... um, gratitude. It was like appreciations, I think, like gratitude and affirmations. So like, I really loved when you said I was cute. Like that really, that really, I really like that. And we were just like, go back and forth, like the smallest things to the biggest things. Like I see you doing, you know, I really love like the inner work that you're doing and just like showering each other with praise, gratitude, and affirmations. And then the next, and they're timed. So these are timed sections so that there's a container. The next section is problems and challenges that it's not like I have a problem with you, but I am feeling challenged by this. Um, And a lot of the times those challenges were, you know, it's kind of like, I think, so so to circle back to answer your question is that the check-in, what it did was it gave me a container and it, it established the culture of being able to express something that is challenging without that being an argument or a source of contention. But that also the frame for doing that is that you have been, I mean, you have got like the endorphins are flying because you've just received all this love and gratitude and affirmation such that someone's like, here are all the things I love about you. I feel challenged by this pattern that you have, right? It's just like a little bit easier to hold once you've gone through the the gratitude part. Um, But that it, I feel like that practice, um, well, just to finish the, the container, after you do problems and challenges, 
um, it was chores. So like, here are the things, you know, assuming I think that you live together or we usually use chores to like, um, oh, we need to um, schedule a therapy appointment or whatever, you know, whatever the collective tasks were. And then the last few minutes were plans for good times. So it's setting up the next time we're going to have an intentional connection with each other. Um, But that practice really solidified the importance of just checking in, of having having it be the norm to just say, hey, I I just want to check in about this. This kind of, I felt challenged by that. It's not a complaint. It's not a request. It's It's just an opportunity for transparency. This happened in my internal world, and I'm speaking it out of my mouth so that you know. You don't have to do anything with it. You don't need to solve it. I am, I am just letting you know <laughs> that this is going on for me. And, and I feel like that is something that I feel is, is the norm in a lot of my queer relationships is that I feel like there's a greater, um, I have this kind of permission to just like say like, this is happening with me. Um, this is just what's going on over here in my internal world. Um, thought you should know about it since we hang out. <laughs> <laughs> you say you want to know me. Here's what's up for me. Here's what's up for me. Yeah. And just yeah. like trusting that I'm allowed to change and evolve. Um, and that, and that it's a gift to my partners and to the people who love me to let them witness that process and let them be in it, be in it before it's this huge revelation, which I feel like all my previous relationships, I'm like, I feel challenged by this. I feel challenged by this. Like maybe I'm queer, like, oh, maybe I want to like live by myself and come like having all these like major challenges and like discoveries within myself and then keeping them all to myself until I could no longer. And then it explodes or then it explodes. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, yeah, I feel like the, the kind of day by day evolution of self that happens in the company of other people. I feel like that to me is what like queer relationship is. Uh, this something that Jamie and I established in the beginning of our relationship was that we aren't in a place where we want an open relationship or to be poly, but we want an open system. Hmm. And so just an opportunity to speak to what is presenting and that the relationship is ever changing. And that it, it doesn't feel confined. I mean, I was in a marriage and there's like, this is, <laughs> marriage is this since I was 20, you know, it's like, do we get to update that contract? Like, what does this look like? What's going on? So um, where did you learn those skills? Were there teachers, people that you witnessed in relationship that you were really inspired by? No, I would say couples therapy is actually where I did a lot of the learning. We had an amazing therapist. Um, I love her. <laughs> I love her. She's a person I think about a lot, but I'm just like, wow, you are out here doing this good work. Yes. Yes. I felt like, I felt like she was kind of our, our, she was sort of our coach for like transparent, vulnerable conversation. So she'd be like, okay, let's practice. Like I'm going to coach y'all through a scene. Okay. You, here's what you do. Here's what you do. Here's what you say. I want you to mirror, you know, she like literally was giving us the tools that I had never, I'm like, wow, this is incredible. I can tell someone, oh, when people yell, I I don't like it. I don't like it when people yell. I don't like it. I just don't like it. Shut down. I feel like, (laughs) I can't. That's a boundary that I have learned about myself. No yelling. 
You know, it's like people yell because they don't feel heard. So what I can do to ensure that someone feels, not even to ensure, but to support someone through feeling heard is to mirror what they've said. So she coached us through, okay, when this person communicates their experience, I want you to say what I am hearing you say, and then tell them what you heard and ask them if you got it right so that they have an opportunity to let you know if you missed something or misunderstood. I'm like, mind blown. Like now, you know, life hack, major life hack. (laughs) That's, you know, I'm like, duh, of course, that's how we communicate. But, but it's not a duh. It's actually like, that was a skill that she taught us was like active listening. And also, also reflecting, like doing the, the work to make sure that someone feels seen and heard. Um, and I, I feel like that, I mean, we saw, we were going to this therapist for almost two years. So it was like, it felt like two years of school on how to be in intentional relationship with someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that felt like the training. I don't think, I don't really think I, I didn't have that many models. My parents got divorced when I was eight. Um, I never really got to see the inner working of uh, inner workings of my grandparents' relationship. So I, I've never, I feel like a lot of the, the learning I'm kind of doing in the last, I've been doing in the last few years. Um, and also just like reading, I, 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 a book that was really transformative for me is this book called more than two and a practical guide to ethical polyamory. And I recommend it whether or not you identify as polyamorous or non-monogamous because like the first, like, I would say like 70% of the book is like, here's how you know, you need to be in right relationship with yourself if you are to be in right relationship with other people. And so here are the questions you need to ask yourself about your desires and your needs and your boundaries and your triggers so that you can actually show up with clarity and communicate with other people. Uh, because until you've done the self work, how are you going to, how are you going to be in, in community with other people? Um, so that was a book that I felt like, you know, it was like that, that book felt like a teacher for me to just get very, very clear because I feel like, you know, I, it was, I was kind of moving through these, these old scripts of like, well, I guess you, like, this is how you're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to like date a little bit and then like become exclusive. And then that evolves into like, you know, maybe living together that evolves into getting married and sharing finances and kind of like um, enmeshing your life. And this book really helped me see like, oh, actually, that's sure. If that sparks the ultimate joy for you, go forth and thrive. If it doesn't, here are all these other ways that you might consider being in relationship with other people, like just affirming you don't have to live together. You don't have to share finances. You don't have to um, even be sexually intimate. Like I had never, it never occurred to me that I could be in partnership with someone and not have sex with them. Like that was, I was like, Oh, huh. You know, just considering all of the assumptions that I made about what being in relationship meant. Um, and so that book really helped me kind of break down some of those, some of those assumptions and create new, just new paradigms. Yeah. Thank you for that. Can you repeat the book one more time? Yes, it's called More Than Two. More Than Two. More Than Two. And then the, um, the subtitle is A Practical Guide to Ethical Polyamory. I think. A Practical Guide to Ethical Yes. Cool. I'll put it in the show notes for anyone who's like, that sounds helpful. Yeah. Um, I adore the integrity that you speak with. 
I think you choose your words very honestly and intentionally, which I think is sometimes difficult for people to choose intentionally and sound sincere and honest and authentic and for it to come from a, a deep place within them. And that is just, I wanted to just say that. <laughs> like, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. I, I do a lot of, um, so I do morning pages where I journal every morning, three stream of consciousness pages. Um, and what it helps me do is sort of notice my language, literally. You know, where I'll, I'll say, like, I have to. And I'm like, have to? <laughs> I have to. I'm choosing to because I want to. You know, like, it's just, I, I feel like I've, I've done enough practice um, to just notice the words that I use reinforce the beliefs that I have. Because if all day long I'm saying, like, I have to go to work instead of I'm choosing to go to work because when I when I direct my energy towards this place, it sustains me financially, which enables me to live the kind of life that I want to live is a totally different thing. And it's just the one word. It's just have, that's the one thing, but it's like choosing to be intentional about the language. Just, I feel like it's just constant affirmations that I'm like, Oh wait, I don't have to do that. I'm choosing to do that. I'm choosing to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. So thank you. I I do it on purpose and I, I work really hard to make sure that, I'm uh, not lying to myself all day. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's obvious you're in practice of it. And I think that's something that I'm really taking from this conversation is how, um, how consciously created a, a life of intention and belonging and joy is mm-hmm. that um, it, it can sometimes just happen serendip- serendipitously. Is that correct? Serendipitously. And that's beautiful when it does. Um, And also it's probably not going to be consistently that way unless we're actually choosing it and cultivating it within ourselves, within our relationships. So before I transition to some rapid fire questions that I have stored up for this time, is there anything that you want to say to complete any, any pieces of the conversation that you feel are still open? Something that's coming up is, um, just this experience of letting difficult or challenging emotions point me in the direction of the things that are really valuable and important to me. And I feel like they're kind of these like signposts. This is something that I, I was reflecting on actually this morning. Um, but everything that I, that I grieve, it's because there's love there and there's a value there. And so being able to, be with grief, but then also asking it, like, what, what are you pointing me towards? Like what, what matters? So even fear too. I mean, all, all of the challenging emotions, like whenever I feel fear, I have to ask myself, I was doing a talk yesterday and I was like, so super duper nervous, like heart racing. And I'm like trying to meditate. It's like, boom, 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 boom. like heart is pounding. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I am feeling nervous and I am feeling anxious. And I'm feeling excited. And I was like, okay, what is this feeling pointing me towards? And I was like, oh my gosh, it is a profound desire for these people to feel seen and for them to move with greater ease. That is what this pounding in my heart is. Like the nervousness is a desire for me to resonate, for me to be heard, uh, to help. And so because I feel like sometimes when I feel like nervous, I'm like, you know, like 
why are you nervous? Like, this is so silly. Like I, I, you should be feeling an expert at this by now. Like I I have this habit of kind of judging my nerves because I feel like I want to show up and be like totally confident and like, I'm not nervous at all. I'm like totally a coach and like totally a self-empowerment guru. And (laughs) I'm not scared to talk to you all, which is like not my truth at all. Um, But I just had this moment of being like, oh, when I really sit with this feeling, it points me into the direction of the value, which is like, it's just compassion. I'm like, oh yeah, every single difficult experience and difficult emotion is always just putting me on a path towards here's this thing that is really important to you. And, and this emotional response helps you understand that this thing is important. Either this thing is at risk or this thing, you know, needs some, like some of your energy and magic to become manifest, but just, yeah, just wanting to share that with folks and, and to get curious about, okay, when, whenever you have a challenging emotional experience or life experience, letting it point you in the direction of your values. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels really important to me to share. Thank you so much. That is an active practice of mine. I've got all of my words like literally written right there. So I can consistently be like, oh yeah, that's why this, that's why this matters so much to me. Or that's why this pisses me off so much. Wow. Okay. Cause yeah. I care. And what a redirection of that energy from anger to I'm angry because I love. Right. Wow. Like that. Thank you for closing us with that. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm so curious. Okay, so I found out they're basically a podcast in and of themselves, but I try to keep it to be the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, great. Love that. So um, can you give us, you did a little bit, but can you give us context for your spiritual background? Yes, my spiritual background is largely informed by Buddhism, um, specifically Nichiren Buddhism, which is N-I-C-H-I-R-E-N. Um, and that is characterized by the practice of chanting. Um, but, and the philosophy that every human being has this innate, infinite potential and capacity for courage, wisdom, and compassion. So like that is, that is like foundational for how I move through the world. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing. How do you know when you know? My body tells me. Mm -hmm. I feel it in my body. My gut. What identities have you had to let go of to own your fullness today? Ooh, how much time do we have? <laughs> if you can name a couple of your favorite ones. <laughs> um, people pleasing, a people pleaser, um, perfectionist, um, helper, like the savior. Um, and honestly, the one that comes to mind is like girlfriend. It's like being somebody's girlfriend. I feel like mm-hmm. that be like really important to me because it means I was chosen and I'm like no, actually I'd let that go it's not as important as it used to be beautiful what are you most enjoying learning right now mm, right now I am most enjoying learning about kink um in my quarantine bubble <laughs> I started to um just investigate my desires in a new way. And I've been like going to like webinars and following these accounts of just like kink being um, 
desires that mainstream society deems as non-traditional um, or kind of out of the ordinary. And so that has been something that I'm just like, oh my gosh, this also feels like a spiritual practice of me getting in touch with desires that I might have some shame around or that might feel a little weird. <laughs> um, yeah. But that is just like lighting me up, just like exploring all of the ways that I want to be like touched and seen and spoken to. I feel like I'm like getting into it. Love that. Have you taken the erotic blueprint quiz? No, I need to. I just took it yesterday and was really surprised that I'm just going to share real quick. I scored highest on sensual and then second on kink. And I thought that was, I had never um, looked at any of these different erotic blueprints before, but I just discovered it and it was really interesting. Yes. I feel like I'm similarly just discovering that like, I'm like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, it's like kink. You think of like really extreme things, but I'm like, that's just, it's just getting in touch with like, again, that fluidity, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. That erotic blueprint. I'll definitely have to look that up. Yeah. Just erotic blueprint free quiz when you're listening, like type it in and it's only 22 questions, super fast. I was like, hmm, this was great. And also I had my partner take it, which is really fun to yeah. have them take it and learn about them as well. Next question. What does grace mean to you? Grace means gentleness it means gentleness it means moving with the spirit of compassion um, and understanding the complexity of any particular thing thank you for that it's beautiful two more the next one is a fun one i think what is your go-to coffee shop order Ooh. I mean, probably like an oat milk latte with honey. Mm, that sounds so good. Doesn't it? It's so good. <laughs> I'm like looking at my schedule. Like, do I have time to make yeah. it anywhere to get this today? Um, last question. What do you want? Mm. I want, I want joy and laughter and resonance and ease and comfort and beauty and proximity to nature and deep relationships with other human beings and playfulness. Um, yeah. Count me in for all of that. For real. For all of that. Thank you so much for your presence and your wisdom and the integrity from which you share gosh, I cannot wait for people to listen to this. Thank you. I'm so, so excited and grateful to have had this space with you. And your questions are beautiful. Thank you for asking them. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, I'm delighted. Same. Oh. <laughs> so have a coffee. Like, that's what I want to do now. I'm like, let's go have a latte together. I know. In, in another, I'm going to say in another life, in another season of life. Yes. That will be, and I just found out I'm a specific manifester. And so I'm just going to say yes. that will be happening. Yes. So it will happen. It will happen. Can't wait. Looking yeah. forward to it. Thank you for tuning in to Everything Belongs. If you loved this episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app so that others might find this podcast too. You can find the show notes and find out more about today's guests by going to madisonmorgan.com backslash podcast. And before you go, I want to tell you about Everything Belongs, the membership. 
For only $17 a month, join my monthly workshop gatherings that will serve as a playground and sacred circle to learn and explore a spirited life fully expressed in your worth, wholeness, and power. Members will have the opportunity to vote on podcast guests, pick workshop topics, send in questions to be answered live on the call, get a monthly journaling PDF, and members-only access to all of my coaching programs. If you're looking for a place to ground, gather, play, and explore all of the conversations shared here on Everything Belongs, then this is a space for you. For more information, go to madisonmorgan.com backslash membership. And if you're not following and chatting with me over on Instagram, please go do that now and DM me and let me know your favorite part of this episode. I cannot wait to hear from you. And until next time, remember that curiosity can be a portal to a rich life where everything truly belongs. See you next time.